Thank you for so many of you who are uh, praying for the elders as we preach our way through Exodus. There's a, a lot of drama, obviously, here, but there's much that we can learn from this that can apply to our lives, and it's not fictitious by any means. This, these are real-life events. I just want to continue to, to pound that in, that sometimes you will hear people speak about these miraculous plagues, these things that God has done, as if that was some moral uh, fable that was given so that we would live right or make the right decisions. Uh, it was given to us because it's history. These events occurred, and they occurred with real men and real women, kings, slaves, people of all types, and they are recorded for us in the scriptures. One of the commentators introduced chapter 8 this way. He said, seven full days have passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Seven long days, days when blood flowed through the river, down the streams, and into the ponds. Days when the fish died and the river began to stink. Days when the Egyptians had to dig for water on the banks of the Nile. During those seven long days, the Lord God of Israel triumphed over the river gods of Egypt. Then Moses went back to Pharaoh. Since the purposes of God's heart do not change, he was still making the same demand of freedom for his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. What God demanded was nothing less than the unconditional release of his people. The Israelites were made for his glory. So rather than slaving away for Pharaoh, they needed to be free to serve him. The impetus for the exodus was the greater glory of God. End quote. As we've read, supported by multiple devastating blows, God continues his single clear demand for freedom for his people to worship him. Pharaoh continues. He continues to refuse with an ever-hardening heart. His belligerence is demonstrated this morning with momentary remorse, repetitive lying, attempts at compromise, and persistent refusal, which probably everyone in here could name as issues that we've dealt with in our own lives. Momentary remorse, repeated lying, attempts to compromise, and persistent, persistent refusal. God's message was clear, it was consistent. He is sovereign, he knows the end from the beginning. But for Pharaoh, his type of response toward Yahweh was once defined by Albert Einstein. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. But Charles Spurgeon wrote, When it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to caterpillars in their hosts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken to us in your word precisely and clearly as you would have us to hear. Thank you, though, Father, that it is inerrant, that it is living, and that it is powerful. Please teach us this morning from these pages from your word. They are perfect, they are powerful, and they are living. 
Change us, Father. Change us into men and women that display humility and obedience rather than stubbornness and pride. Please make your word speak to us and change our lives this morning. Amen. Verse 1 in chapter 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. We come upon this first plague, and I reckon it was intruders who left a big stink. Intruders who left a big stink. And we're talking about these frogs. This first plague has warnings of a strike. And they were delivered directly to Pharaoh, presumably in his palace. The fifth and eighth plagues will be introduced in the same way. And if you look on the back of the handout sheet there, you'll see what really is an updated chart. We had one last week. This one has an added column. Some of you had asked about this. It has the added column of the Egyptian deities that were defeated by the specific plagues. So you might keep that on hand uh, just to refer back to as we're walking our way through these plagues. Moses comes to Pharaoh with the same song. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. It's the same song, but a new verse is added this time. Verse 2, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Smite. It means to strike with a blow. That's what these plagues were. God striking with a blow, and this blow will be intimate it will be thorough and it will be very intrusive. No place will exist in Egypt where you will not see, smell, and hear frogs on top of frogs. They will invade your deepest privacy with impunity. In your house, Pharaoh, in your house, not just your lowly servant's house, not just your family's home, but your house. And not just your house, but frogs will flow on into your bedroom and up on your bed. Your servants' houses, it even says on your people, in your ovens and even your kneading bowls. It will be sickening. We get that picture, don't we? Several years ago, on an early September morning, my children and I arrived in Hutchison to open up what we used to have there at the State Fair, the art booth. And as we got near where the booth was, there was a stretch of booths down along that side of the building. And the ground was black. And we looked at that and we couldn't believe it. There were literally, there must have been millions of crickets everywhere on the ground. And we opened the tent and pulled back the side curtains and stepped in there. And it was black. Crickets had come out through the night, and, and I don't know what it was, whether it was God's plague on the state fair, I don't know. But we got in there and we shoveled them off, and it was so gross. And my kids were very good about it, and we got them off the boxes and off the, the tracks and off the displays, and then we would open up the boxes to get out more tracks, and they would be filled with crickets. It was, it was the most strange thing that I had ever seen as far as in, insects go. 
We got it cleaned out, and you know something? Two days later, there were no crickets. And I have no idea what caused that. And if somebody, somebody here knows that, tell me afterwards. But I thought about that as I thought through these frogs. Those were only crickets. And they were confined to one block of the state fair area. In Egypt, the frogs spread for hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles from border to border of Egypt. Frogs. Why frogs? Why frogs? Well, Hecht. Hecht. Hecht was an Egyptian goddess. An Egyptian goddess of resurrection and fertility. She was pictured with the head of a frog. And sometimes also the body of a frog. One historian noted the frog goddess Hecht was the spouse of the creator god Knum. The Egyptians believed that Knum fashioned human bodies on his potter's wheel and then Hecht, his spouse, breathed into them the breath of life. For this reason, frogs were highly regarded in Egypt. Frog-shaped pieces of jewelry were worn to provide protection from danger and from evil spirits. Killing frogs violated Egyptian law. The usual natural abundance of frogs in the area was due to the Nile River and its seasonal flooding. That flood not only increased the frog population, but it brought rich, fertile new soil throughout the Nile Delta. Normally frogs were a very good sign. But Egypt had never imagined frogs like this. Verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Enter the keystone magicians. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up more frogs on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's team of magicians, earlier it included wise men, although by this time in the story they're not being called that anymore. Once again the magicians are powerless to stop what Yahweh has produced. They can only add to the calamity. They cannot cure it by any means. One commentator wrote that the magicians could duplicate but not eradicate the problem was however sufficient to solidify royal stubbornness. But on the contrary, I don't think that was Pharaoh's impression at all. By this time, the ineptness of the magicians didn't solidify anything for Pharaoh. Instead, Pharaoh has a growing realization that this Yahweh is a lot more than he had bargained. Verse 8, we read, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Lord, Lord, mentioned twice there, it's the word Yahweh. This tells us, perhaps for a very rare moment in his royal life, Pharaoh is absolutely desperate. Please cry out to Yahweh for me. There. Pharaoh said it. He said the name Yahweh. The name of the Hebrew God whom he had sworn he did not know. Likely at that time, when he first said it, he didn't. And if he did, he knew very little. But now his eyes are being forced wide open to see more clearly who this Yahweh is. He realizes, first of all, his appeal must be made to Yahweh. The power 
over the frogs is Yahweh's. It is Yahweh's command that he must obey. And it is Yahweh to whom the Hebrew people belong and to whom they must give worship. But as one fellow wrote, rather than asking God to take away his sins, Pharaoh asked God to take away the frogs. Pharaoh wanted relief from the punishment for his sin without being willing to repent of the sin itself. And Moses then said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. Accept the honor. It's a word that means to gleam or to embellish. This comes out differently in, in several different translations. One reads, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee? May the honor be yours. You tell me. In other words, Pharaoh, you pick the time. But I am the one who will speak to Yahweh. And that opportunity is then accepted by Pharaoh. In verse 10 we read, he said, Tomorrow. And he said, let it, and then Moses says back to him, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Did you ever think about why tomorrow? Why didn't he say right now? Why endure another second of this teeming ocean of croaking frogs night and day in every nook and cranny of every city and every home throughout the land? Why wait? One writer gave this insight and I think it explains much here. He says, and I think that he is asking for a respite a respite till tomorrow before he lets the people go. For they fall into absurdity who think that he asked Moses to drive away the frogs by his prayer on the morrow as if Pharaoh went quietly to sleep and put off the remedy of the evil. But rather it means that if he be released from this difficulty he promises the discharge of the people but yet suspends it till the next day for the purpose of deceit. Now let me give you the Cliff Notes version of that. Pharaoh had given his word that if the frogs go, he will release Yahweh's people. But he still does not really want to let them go, so Pharaoh manipulates the timing, hoping to get rid of the frogs and still keep his slaves. In spite of full knowledge of that, God speaks through Moses, and Moses gives his promise on behalf of Yahweh. Verse 11, And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people, and they shall remain in the river only. And that promise is fulfilled. Verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried out to the Lord. Concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the intercession was made. And grace was given. So the Lord did. The Lord did according to Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses. Out of the courtyards. And out of the fields. And everything was cool. No. What happens here? The frogs die. But they didn't disappear. And they didn't just die. They rotted. And they stank. They gathered them together in heaps. And the land stank. It reeked. For a while, that may have been worse than live frogs. The consequences of Pharaoh's rebellion literally hung in the air, wreaking stench on all the citizens of the land. The consequences of a hard heart. 
Neither Yahweh's gracious relief from the plague, nor the hardship of dead stinking frogs throughout his land changed Pharaoh's heart. He continues with hardness. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And there's a phrase here that we see for the first time. There's several phrases, basically three, maybe four, that talk about the hardening of his heart. But in this particular one, he hardened his heart. He hardened his own heart. Now the third plague. The third plague comes sweeping in on Egypt like a stealth aircraft. There is no warning. Unwarned attacks also occur on the sixth and the ninth plagues. And in this one we have the pests who convinced the magicians. Verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and on beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. The lice mentioned here are likely tiny stinging gnats, barely visible to the naked eye, according to one of the sources. You see, Yahweh had created Adam out of what? Out of dust. And again, now, from the dust were brought to life these living, stinging pests. Like the frogs, they were pervasive across the nation. Notice in that verse, all the dust of the land throughout all the land. But this time, the plague was unmatchable. The effect could not be matched by the magicians. Verse 18, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Why did they do that? Why did they seek to make more lice? The magicians set out to respond to this plague like they had in the past. It's almost unimaginable that they were hoping they too could make more lice. Verse 17 makes it clear that the land was already full of these stinging creatures everywhere. But this time the magicians could not even do that. Yahweh would not allow so much as a single lice to appear from their black magic. The magicians evidently were as stunned as anyone else. Their failure to recreate what Aaron's rod had effortlessly produced throughout the land dumbfounded them. And it caused the magicians to say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This Pharaoh is the finger of God. The act was undeniably from God. And with this plague, although we don't read a lot about it, the Egyptian deities Hathor and Nut fell before the power of Yahweh. But Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them. Just as the Lord had said. This is the third time we read that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And then we come to essentially round four. The third plague. This fourth round of battle features a very amazing, amazing intelligent insect. Intelligent insects sent by God. 
comes with a warning. A warning in the morning. Verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now if you are keeping track of these plagues, this will be the first of the second set of three plagues. Remember last week we looked at there are three sets of three leading up to the final plague. This is the first of the second plague, of the second set. In verse 21, God says something interesting here. You send or I will send. Verse 21, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. There is a play on words that Yahweh makes in this command and the warning so that it is not really seen in the translation. The Hebrew word translated let go in verse 21 where it says, let my people go. And the word translated send, as in send swarms, are the same word. It's as if the Lord warns, if you will not send out my people, I will send in swarms. If you will not send, I will send. Now some of your translations also show the word, quote, of flies in italics. Does anybody have that in italics in theirs? Okay. This tells you that these words are not in the original Hebrew text. They were added carefully to give sense to the sentence. The ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint translate the word swarms as dogfly. According to a Department of Agriculture site, dogflies breed in decaying vegetation with or without manure mixed in. Quite a neighborhood. <laughs> they are usually found associated with cattle production or horse stables. Both male and female adults prefer to take blood from large animals. But if their normal hosts are not available, they will feed on nectar for a time and then on anything that is warm and has blood. Other sources suggest that the swarms were the ichneumon fly or wasp. It is a blood-sucking insect that lays its eggs on living creatures. The eggs then hatch, and as they grow, the larva feasts on its hosts. Neither possibility is very appealing, is it? The Egyptian deity represented by the swarm is thought to be the god Wachit. Flies like either of these. Flies like this are not only physically painful and repulsive, but they can even be downright scary. Again, many years ago, I was on a canoeing trip in the lakes of northern Minnesota and into Canada and we went up there and we canoed on in and when we portaged from one lake cross land to the next lake and we went I think 25 miles or so into Canada. It was a beautiful place. The lakes were gorgeous, the forests were, were just amazing, the fishing was good. The days were amazing. But at night, when the sun began to set, the mosquitoes and blood-sucking flies began to swarm in clouds. They were so thick at times you could hear a buzz in the air as they came across the lakes for us at night. I can only imagine that in Egypt, this is 24-7 and 100 times worse. 
These swarms sent by Yahweh literally devastated the land of Egypt. They left it in ruin. They laid it to waste. But as destructive and detestable as the Egyptian dogflies were, they were even more amazing in their ability to identify specific targets. The most highly developed, developed guided missile systems, whether heat-seeking infrared missiles, remotely guided explosive kamikaze drones, radar-guided, satellite-guided, nothing comes close to the pinpoint accuracy of these flies to attack every person in Egypt from Pharaoh to slave and invade every house, but never once bite or intrude upon the life of a Hebrew slave. That's amazing. For Yahweh said in verse 22, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. This is Yahweh's first clear declaration of personal protection for his children as he devastates Egypt. He calls them my people in verse 22. And Yahweh will again declare this with several future plagues. I will make a difference. I will make a distinction, he says, between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Well, it's easy to overlook the fact that the Lord said, tomorrow this sign shall be. This is actually a wonderful gift of grace. It actually gives Pharaoh ample time to consider what has happened and to repent. This train wreck of destruction could have been halted instantaneously by Yahweh. But Pharaoh is not about to repent or submit. So the warning is fulfilled. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. But this is a concession with compromise. Look carefully. What do you see is missing in Pharaoh's offer? Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Perhaps some of us would have reasoned, Ah, that's good. It's as close as we're going to get with this stubborn fellow. Nevertheless, Moses responds to Pharaoh's compromise with his original demand. And Moses says, it's not right to do so. For we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to Yahweh. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? Whether it was because Israel would be sacrificing animals such as bulls and goats, which the Egyptians felt to be sacred, or because sheep and shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians, it's not really made clear. But Moses points out what many scholars believe Pharaoh knew when he asked that if they follow Pharaoh's compromise, the people of Egypt may rise up and attack the Hebrews. Regardless, of why. Moses' position remains unchanged and he begins with the phrase that was left out. We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. 
not in the land. Three days journey. And in an effort to save face and appear to still have some power and control, Pharaoh follows up, well, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. Intercede for me. You look at this plea of Pharaoh's. It's a combination that is grossly convoluted. Here he sits. Here sits Pharaoh covered with blood-sucking flies, knowing they come from the power and will of Yahweh. Yet he begins his desperate pleading by audaciously giving the impression that he is in control. I will let you go. Only you shall not go very far. Now intercede for me. Pharaoh cannot stop these flies and he cannot even personally ask Yahweh. He desperately needs Moses to speak on his behalf. And he knows this. But Moses gives a promise of relief. In verse 29, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. In this moment, Moses who had abandoned his people 40 years earlier, had worked as a hired man for his father-in-law, taking care of his sheep, who in many ways was a failure, who has been instilled with the Spirit of God now and will obey at any cost. We see this happening. That moment, Moses courageously confronts the most powerful human leader on the planet. Pharaoh has lied before, and he will lie again. But Moses assures him that this does not go unnoticed. Before we look at Pharaoh with disgust, I thought about this. You know, lying. Lying is a sin that besets men without exception. Not simply Pharaohs, but slaves, pastors, teachers. Farmers, mothers, fathers, children, engineers, and nurses. Sometimes we even brazenly lie to God. And that is always a very bad idea. Quite dangerous. One ancient writer includes not only the heathen in this struggle with unrighteousness, for he wrote, the prophet complains in the Psalms that thus also it happened with the Jews. And then he quotes Psalm 78, verse 34. When he slew them, then they sought him. When God slew them, his people sought him. And they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did but flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him. Neither were they steadfast in the covenant. The commentator goes on to say, In fine, this is a disease common to all hypocrites. That having found by experience their frowardness to be destructive to them, they feign penitence for the sake of obtaining pardon. Because they cannot escape the judgments of God, 
But when they fancy themselves escaped, they hasten back to the same pride, they kick against God and even wantonly insult Him. In a word, it is only their trouble that humbles them and that only for a short time. Lying to God can sometimes be deadly. Consider Ananias in Acts chapter 5. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. We hate to admit we lie. I hate to admit that I lie. But if I said otherwise, I would be lying right now. May we demonstrate humility to confess when we do. And may the love of Christ empower us to repent and resist. Yahweh's grace is demonstrated in the last three verses as he responds to this lying, stubborn, rebellious king. Verse 30, Moses' intercession. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And Yahweh's relief in verse 31. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. And then finally we close with Pharaoh's repeat offense. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. We look back at this chapter as we opened. Supported with four irresistible blows, Yahweh continued his one clear command to Pharaoh. Freedom for and worship by his people. Again, Pharaoh responded with temporary remorse, lying, compromise, and outright rebellion. Where does that put us? Well, I hope this is, is applicable. Our sovereign God, He may graciously, repeatedly, and increasingly place in us in circumstances that bring us disappointment, dissatisfaction, frustration, pain, sleeplessness, and tears. There's a lot in that. Let me say it again. Our sovereign God may graciously, repeatedly, and increasingly place us in circumstances that bring us disappointment, dissatisfaction, frustration, pain, sleeplessness, and tears. These may or may not be a result of sin, but they are not without God's purpose. If they result from some ongoing sin, don't drift into the fog. Don't drift into the fog of Pharaoh with temporary remorse and regret, followed by lies and compromise and ultimately rebellion. It will harden your heart. Instead, repent and obey. This is not easy for us to hear and it's not comfortable for me to tell you because I know these biblical admonitions are for me. But God said it. I'm simply a messenger this morning. In Hebrews chapter 3, 
Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. At times, plagues and trials come even though we have humbled ourselves and we have repented of sin. If you believe in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you must recognize that trials and difficulties of life are God-ordained. He brings them. Paul wrote in a statement to the Corinthians something that is quite the opposite of the light testimony of Pharaoh. While Pharaoh remained unmoved and even hardened by the plagues that God graciously sent, here is what Paul said about the long list of trials God set before him. 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm afraid I'm ready to bow out after I am content with weaknesses. But I don't want to be. And I know many of you don't want to be. We want the power of Christ in our life. When I am weak, then I am strong. In the face of plagues and afflictions, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. But Paul looked to the giver of those trials and trusted that Christ was enough. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he wrote, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Yahweh loves his children. If you will turn away from your own independence and sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will know he loves you. Perhaps you realize, some of you, perhaps you realize it is time to drop the excuses and the compromised living and give your life as a living sacrifice to God. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. The following prayer was given about 3,000 years ago. It was given by a king much different than the king of Egypt. This king loved Yahweh. His name was Solomon. He knew that the people of God would sometimes stray away into sin and they would need the Savior to bring them back. So whether you are following Christ or you are returning to Christ, this prayer is as honest and humble as if it were written this morning. 1 Kings chapter 8. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, 
Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. When they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. And give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. This was taken place in the time when the temple was where God dwelt for the people. We, with the new covenant, have a fabulous advantage. God has said in Corinthians chapter 6 that he walks among his people. He dwells in his people. We do not have to look for the temple for these things. We have Christ but we must repent when we have wandered away, when we have drifted away, or we will be hardened just like that Pharaoh was. Some of us fight against habitual sins, against things that pop up out of nowhere. We, we fight with things in our mind that have anger and pride and defensiveness. Some of those we feel a little more comfortable with. Yeah, we need to work on, but I don't want to tell anybody I actually lied or actually did this. Sin may be keeping you from God because of stubbornness and pride. Repent and follow. Don't let it harden you. Don't be like the insanity of Pharaoh. But walk humbly with your God and seek Him. And this in closing, if some of you are banging your head repeatedly against ingrained or habitual sin and the Spirit of God is convicting you, Cry out for his repentance. Repentance is a gift. In Acts chapter 11, we read, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God grant repentance to those who are far from him. May he grant repentance to those of us who know him and have drifted away. May we continually seek to know and walk with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You have spoken of this Pharaoh throughout your scriptures. It's interesting as how he becomes the image of stubbornness and rebellion. And yet also he is in the palm of your hand. Lord, please lead us. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Bring us near to you, Lord. Where we have sinned, convict us. May we fall on our faces and look to you for hope. May we trust in your promises. May we remember what you have done. And Father, as I'm praying, I think about 
one of the songs that Daniel led us in this morning, that you had become a curse for us. Oh, my, my Lord, my God, my Father, that you would place your Son in our place that we deserve to be cursed, and he would be cursed for us so that we might have life. Thank you for your great mercy, your great love. Thank you for the brothers and sisters here, Lord. We are in a journey, and we want to grow and honor you. May this little church spread the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this city, throughout this state. In your name we pray, amen.